We're going to be in Acts chapter 10 this morning, continuing on from last week, looking at this person named Cornelius. Cornelius is one introduced to us in the scriptures as a centurion, devout in godliness, generous to the poor, and continually in prayer. Acts chapter 10. In his godliness, he is chosen for a special honor. The special honor to be bestowed upon Cornelius and upon his family is that his family would be the first to have the power of the Holy Spirit poured out on them as a Gentile family. God is doing a new thing in this passage. Acts chapter 10 is one of the pivotal chapters of Scripture in the Bible. It is about God expanding the gospel work. We have seen some Gentiles come to the Lord before this, but this is the moment in which a new work will truly begin. The removing of barriers between Jew and Gentile. Speaking, the Lord speaking by his angelic messengers to both Peter and to Cornelius personally to bring them together into what Joel 3 says is a common salvation. There are not two different salvations happening here. There is one Savior, one salvation coming together in Jesus' name. So by the vision that the Lord gives Peter, he, which we looked at last week, removes Old Testament dietary laws, allowing for Peter to enter into Cornelius' house without it being a problem. And Peter begins to preach the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ to Cornelius and to the friends that he has brought together at that place. And so this is where we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 10, verse 34 this morning and reading through the rest of the chapter. If you would please stand to honor the Lord this morning as we read his word. Acts 10, 34. This is Peter preaching to the household of Cornelius and his friends gathered. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge, to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. 
All right. More preaching in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is full of preaching. You wonder why do we still have preaching in the church today? Because it's everywhere in the book of Acts, which is the pattern of how we should uh, conduct ourselves in the church. It says in verse 34 that Peter opened his mouth. This is a common way of saying that he preached or spoke to them. Now, Peter's sermon was longer than the seven or eight sentences that you see here. This is a summary statement that Peter began to preach and speak to them about these things. And as he was doing that, this happens with the Holy Spirit. But he is preaching to them certain things about Jesus. Preaching in the church is always about Jesus. It should always be about Jesus because Jesus is the center of the scriptures. He is the center of the open door of salvation to us. And so Peter is preaching to them, as it says in verse 36, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Why do we need to hear about peace through Jesus Christ? Because we all begin in our sins. We all begin in the same place. At animosity, in rebellion towards God, under the condemnation of God, separated from God, we are not at peace with God. We are in the opposite of that. There is a separation between God and all humanity. In this state, the Bible describes us in many different ways. It describes us as lost. It describes us as blind. It describes us as enslaved and dead in our trespasses and sins. Our spiritual state is one of deadness before God. We're described as living in a kingdom of darkness. We're described as living under the wrath of God to be justly judged by God for our sins. And those of you who came to salvation later in your life understand what it means to live in darkness, to be deceived, to be enslaved, and to know that you cannot free yourself from what is happening in your life. And the Lord Jesus comes in as a savior. The, the way of Christ, what is being preached by Peter and every other person who preaches the salvation of Jesus in the book of Acts is not that the work of God and the person of God is an addition to your life, that you're a mostly good person and we need to add one more thing to your life to help you be a little bit better. That is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is salvation. You being lost and now finding your way. You being blind and now seeing God for who he really is. You being enslaved by your sins, but then set free to live according to God's will. The bondage of sin and addiction broken in your life. And you who were dead, now being alive. That true spiritual life comes into your life by the power of God. We're going to see here in the work of the Holy Spirit, the power of God entering into these people's lives. That they might go forward out of Cornelius' house, not with a little more religion, but with the power of God at work in their lives to radically transform and change them. One of the special things about what Peter mentions here in verse 38 is how this is a work of the Trinity. The scriptures teach us that God is a triune God, which means three persons, one God. This is a mysterious thing, but this is the basis of Christianity in the Bible. This is how God reveals himself to us in scripture. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one God. We see here in verse 38, 
how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So let's talk a little bit about the working of God, God, the triune God amongst God's self. We see the Son sent by the Father to accomplish the Father's will. We see that, that phrase spoken over and over in the Gospels. Jesus saying, I have come to accomplish my Father's will. And when he is crucified, he says, it is finished. Well, what was finished? He was finished in doing all that God had willed for him to do. So the Son is sent by the Father to accomplish his will. The Son is anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit. We see this most clearly in the baptism of Jesus. When as he comes up out of the water of baptism to begin his ministry, his public ministry, the power of the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And it is by the power of God's Spirit that Jesus does the works that he does. The Son accomplishes the Father's will and then is, ascends to heaven and is given the name above every name and the throne that is above every throne and he is exalted to the highest place. But we learn from the scriptures that the Father and the Son send the power of the Holy Spirit to continue the work of the Lord in the world, to continue his saving work, to continue the purposes of God in the world until Jesus will come again. I fully understand that this is a mysterious thing. But what we do in the scriptures is that we read what is here and we accept the things that are there by faith. We cannot reconcile the person of God fully in our mind. But this is what is given to us. And this is what Peter is preaching. And this is what I am preaching to you as well. That God's will has been accomplished in salvation by the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. Who has ascended to heaven now and has sent his spirit to empower and strengthen us. That we might be made new. That we might be saved. That we might live new life in Christ. And be drawn out of the darkness of this world to enter into the kingdom of God. So in verse 39 and 40, Peter shifts to the cross. There's so much that could be said about Jesus and his ministry. John writes in the end of the gospel of John that if Jesus, if everything Jesus were to have done was all written down, it would fill all the volumes of all the books in the whole world, which is fascinating. So if you get into the details of everything that Jesus did, there's so much more that could be said. But what is recorded in the few pages of the Gospels are what we need to know to essentially understand the works of Christ that we might believe in him and be saved. But when it's even shorter, when it's cut down even more, I've got one chance to talk to you about something. I have to go to the cross because the cross is the central work of Jesus Christ. This is where our sins are atoned for and then his resurrection from the dead and his ascension. And so Peter reminds us in verse 39 and 40, the audience there, that there was no guilt found in Jesus, that the wrath of God towards sin was rightfully due to us as sinners, but it was poured out on Jesus on the cross in our place, that he might be our substitute. And this wrath of God poured out upon him all the way unto death, that he died on the cross but that he was raised from the dead on the third day, never to die again. And the amazing thing about this sermon is that Peter says, I'm an eyewitness to it. I saw him alive after I saw him die. 
And then we were there as he ascended into heaven. And I am coming and telling you about these things as an eyewitness. Why? Because I was commanded to go tell you these things about Jesus. He had me, he intentionally had himself be seen so that we would understand what had happened. So we would then go out and bear witness and tell others. I want to read a beautiful passage about the cross and about what is happening on the cross from Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 through 15 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Beautiful summary of what the cross is and what is happening on the cross. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins were made alive by God. He is imparting his spiritual life to us, that those of us who were dead, that we might live. Yes, amen. Together with him. He's bringing us into his life, bringing us into his kingdom, that we might have fellowship with him. It is not a far off thing. He is bridging the gap of separation that we might enter into fellowship with him. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How is this? By canceling the record of debt in its legal demands. It's two different ways of viewing our sins. Like a debt that has been piled up that we cannot possibly pay. And so Jesus pays the debt. And the other way of looking at it is legal demands. We have been declared guilty. We are guilty. And something must happen to where our guilt is taken away, that we are forgiven. And so Jesus pays the, the weight of our guilt and our sin, that we might receive mercy and grace from him. And how is this happening? It's nailed to the cross. That's a powerful statement. It means that in Jesus' death upon the cross, as he is nailed there, as he gives up his life as an atoning sacrifice for us, there is an exchange. And we are the beneficiary of these things by grace. And in Jesus overwhelming this sin and death, he has disarmed evil in the world. He has broken the power of death and evil in the world, for Jesus is the Savior of the world. A beautiful passage. Peter is preaching these things to this group of people in the house because he's commanded to by Jesus. Why? So that others might believe. It's not just for this small group of people to keep to themselves. Peter wants to see other people know who Jesus is. As Jesus went about proclaiming the kingdom of God, so Peter goes about proclaiming the kingdom of God. That others may share in the life of Jesus. That others may partake in his divine nature. Be forgiven of their sins. Have peace with God in eternal life through his power. That's why I'm here preaching to you this morning. That you might know who Jesus is. That you might share in his life and share in his joy and understand his person and grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Well, verse 44 is interesting. It's while Peter is preaching... I'm sure much better than what I'm doing here, but similar to what I'm doing here, the power of the Holy Spirit falls on this house. 
and there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the midst of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as it says in verse 43, everyone who receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The Holy Spirit is poured out and the group is extended, this is a group of extended family and friends, if you remember from a few weeks ago, that he had brought together in faith, believing that God was going to do something magnificent because he had had an angel visit him, saying that something was going to happen as Peter came and preached to him the word of God. As the Spirit of the Lord falls upon these people, they begin speaking in other languages, and they begin praising and honoring God. It's not a chaotic situation, it's a glorious situation. They are praising the Lord for what has happened as they have heard the gospel, received the gospel, and the power of God comes upon them. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that the description of this event is very, very similar to something that's already happened here in the book of Acts, which is the day of Pentecost on Acts chapter 2. And that's exactly right. It is the same type of day. It is a second Pentecost. That's why Acts chapter 10 is so radically important. It is another outpouring of God's power by the Holy Spirit. When the group of disciples had seen Jesus ascend into heaven, they were told, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on you. Because we cannot do the work of God without the power of God. If we're trying to do the work of God in our own strength and our own flesh, that's called man-made religion. And there will be no power in it. There will be no salvation in it. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit will the work of God be done, will people come to salvation, and will the church truly be built. So they go back and they wait for the power of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and it's poured out on them in a very similar way, and they go out from that place in power to preach the gospel but it is still Jewish-centric. It's at this moment that the Holy Spirit, in the same way, same Spirit is poured out on non-Jewish people, Gentile people. And it is a marker. It is a unique occasion. It does not mean that every time a person of Gentile descent comes to salvation, that this same thing is going to happen. The day of Pentecost and this day at Cornelius' house is a unique occasion to mark a shift in the church and a shift in what God is doing in the world. But one of the main things I want you to understand this morning is it signifies the same salvation to the Gentiles. It is not a different salvation. It is the same salvation, and they are coming into the same salvation. And so Peter and those who are there are amazed at what is happening, because it's not only by word, by what Peter is saying, but it's by power and it's by glory. It is something that we pray for all the time in this church, that the work of the Lord in this church would not just be something of words of me talking, of you talking, but it would be something of earnest spiritual power from the Lord. That the Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts and in this place in a way that when you walk away from this, you feel an earnest sense of God has been at work in this place today. And I am overjoyed at the work and the, the things that God is doing in my life. And I have a sense that God is in fact real. And that's what's happening in this place. The salvation which had only been for the Jews is now dramatically extended to the non-Jewish world. 
Peter himself is unclear and his companions as to exactly what is happening. It says in verse 45, And the believers from among the circumcised, that's the group who had come from Joppa with Peter back to this place, are amazed. This was not what they were expecting. And we're going to see in the next chapter, they're going to go and report this to the church because this is a a seismic shift. This is a big deal. And we're going to have to talk about this and figure out what God means by doing this in the world. And it's going to take some time for them to figure it out. But Paul writes about this at length in Romans chapter 11. There is a whole chapter about it. And so I would ask you to keep your finger in Acts chapter 10, but to turn over to Romans chapter 11 with me, because we're going to spend some time here working through Paul's thoughts uh, given to him by God's Spirit to understand what is happening between Jews and Gentiles in the world, because this is very, very significant. The Jews didn't go on from this time to disband and be dispersed in the world. I believe, in fact, it's one of the most verifiable proofs of the reality and truthfulness of Scripture that the Jews as an ethnic and national people still exist today. No other ancient people exist in any way today. But the Jews exist in almost the same way that they always have. And they are still a nation in the same place that they always have been. And it is a preservation done and accomplished by the work of God. Because the Lord is not finished in working with these covenant people. And so Romans chapter 11, Paul starts with this. I ask then, has God rejected his people? It's an important question. Because if the Holy Spirit is now being poured out on Gentiles and the missionary enterprise is going out into the Gentile world, does this mean that God has rejected the Jews? And we need to see the response with the exclamation point behind it. By no means. So the expansion of the gospel to Gentiles does not mean that God has rejected the Jewish people. And he follows it up with uh, sort of an obvious thing. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. Paul, the writer, the preacher, the missionary, is himself a Jew. And so God has not rejected the Jews, but something else is happening here. And he goes on to try to help us understand what that is. Well, the first thing that he does here in Romans chapter 11, verses 2 through 4, is to give them an example. An example of a time in the world where it seemed like God had rejected his people who had become apostate, rebellious, and idolatrous. And this was the time of Elijah the prophet. There was a time when Elijah was ministering where Ahab was king and wicked Jezebel and almost the whole nation had turned over to the Baals and idols and Elijah felt like he was the last person in all of Israel that still believed in the Lord. And he's, he's moping about it. And God reminds him, no, there are 7,000 other people that have not bowed the knee to Baal and will not. They are my remnant. Even though the nation of Israel was millions of people, it had been reduced to only a few thousand that were still faithful in their love for the Lord. But still, there was a remnant Verse 5 talks to us about that in Romans 11. So too at the present time, there is a remnant. So the present time in verse 5 is Paul's time. So just like there was a remnant back then, there is a remnant during Paul's time. A remnant is a, a small piece cut out of a much larger piece. 
If you go to the carpet store this afternoon and say, I would like to buy a remnant, it's not going to be the whole roll. They're going to give you a little thing like the size of that rug right there. And it's a leftover piece. But the remnant of God is a chosen people, a specific people that are cut out and held out for the faithfulness of the Lord. God is not finished with saving the Jews. He was not finished then. He is not finished now. And he is not finished with what he is going to do with this people in the future. During Peter's time, it was no different than Elijah's time. It seemed to some of them in the church that all the Jews had rejected Jesus. Remember that during the gospel period and the Acts period, the number one aggressor against the church are fellow Jews. They, they are despised. They're the ones out with the warrants for their arrest to jail them and persecute them. Their greatest hardship is coming from other Jews. And so Peter reminds them that God is not finished with them and Paul is saying the same thing. By grace, some Jews were still believing, even though the majority of the ethnic and national Jews were not during that time. And if we look back over the history of Israel, it's actually an unusual thing for the whole nation to be rejoicing and to be passionate in their belief. Most of the, of the past is about Israel and their hard-hearted, stiff-necked rebellion, and so it is with the world today. Because what this means is that the way has always been narrow. And few have there always been who find it. But this is what Paul is speaking of. Verses 7 through 10 speaks to the rest of unbelieving Israel and Jews. So those during that time and the previous that were rebellious in their way, the Lord hardens their heart in their rebellious way. He leaves them in their hatred for Jesus and their eyes are darkened. And so it is, I believe, unto this day. So I want to read to you something from R.C. Sproul. I think it's a, it's a masterful statement as to what is happening here. And this is him saying, uh, giving a summary statement of what it is like to speak to a, a Jew about Jesus. Do you believe that Judaism is true and Christianity is false? Yes, they reply. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? No, they reply. They believe our religion is false, that we as Christians are the ones stumbling in darkness, that we are guilty of idolatry because we worship a man and deny the monotheistic foundations of their Jewish faith. Yet they have an antipathy towards evangelism. They do not evangelize Christians. If they believe that Judaism is the truth of God, why don't they press to bring us into the true religion of Abraham? When I ask, they have nothing to say. They mumble, it is not for you, it is for us. Paul wants to break, break through those barriers. He wants to cut through the hostility and resistance by making the Jews jealous of what God has given to us. We're going to talk about that jealousy word in just a moment as it comes up here. The, the Jew in the ethnic and national sense rejects Jesus as Savior. And so for us to worship Jesus as the Son of God means that we are being idolatrous. We're worshiping a man who is not worthy to be worshipped. And that is the great dividing line between the two of us. 
But in Peter and Paul accepting the divinity of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus as divine, accepting this Trinitarian understanding of Jesus, that we have entered into the salvation of God. What happens here in verses 11, and uh, we're still in Romans 11, 11b, the second part of it, says this. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. What this means is that through the hardness of heart of the Jews and their rejecting of Jesus, the gospel has been expanded to other people. It has gone out to others that they might hear. And the words that Paul uses here and three or four other times throughout Romans 11 is that the Jews might be made jealous of what is happening to the Gentiles that they might then return to the work of God. It's an interesting thought, but it's the idea of you taking something for granted, neglecting it, then someone else enjoying and entering into that, and then you seeing it and saying, well, maybe I misjudged that. Maybe I overlooked something there. And you return and give it a second look and then enter back into the goodness of that thing. In the same way, they may see the power of God at work in Gentiles and turn again to Jesus. Like all things in the scriptures, especially with the teachings of Christ, an illustration, an analogy is needed to help us grasp and put our arms around what God is doing here. So in verses 17 and following down through 24, Paul uses the analogy of an olive tree. Olive trees were very well known in the Middle East, especially in Israel, uh, really a, a marker of the most important export and a, and a, and a, a major uh, source of food in Israel. These olive trees, trees, olive trees are ancient trees. They can live for three or 400 years. And the way in which they are cultivated to produce better olives is through grafting. And this is interesting. I went and watched a YouTube video on it the other day. They're still doing this. You can go watch it uh, if you want to when you go home. But what they do is they take a healthy tree and then they take a branch off of an old tree that bore very good fruit and they cut one branch off and they had this way of sticking the new branch down through the bark of the, of the new tree and wrapping it tight to where the nourishment goes from the new tree into the old branches and it bears fruit in a way that is in keeping with the excellent characteristics of the previous tree. And so this is what it means to graft two trees together. And so analogies are not perfect, but it is helping us understand what is going on here. The Jews are like the ancient olive tree, the trunk representing the Jewish people and God's promises to them. The unbelieving Jews are like branches that are broken off. In their unbelief, they are removed from the tree. And believing Gentiles are like new branches that are being grafted into an old tree. The purpose of grafting is to ensure the desired characteristics are brought forth in new growth. So the new growth of what God is doing in the world is going to look differently. He's taking a wild growth or a, a godliness of a people that is outside of his covenants and outside what he is doing in the world. And he is bringing them into his covenant promises and into the common salvation that he is working in the world. That as his work goes forward, it might be one unified work. It is not a new work. It is an expanded work. And that is essential to our understanding this morning. 
In Romans 11, verses 18, uh, Paul reminds these people, if you uh, are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. That's basically saying, remember where you've come from. Don't think that you're a new thing. Don't think that you stand alone. Remember what God has been doing in the past and that you're entering into the flow of this. It is not a new work. You are entering into an ancient work. In verses 20 and 21, do not become proud. None of the unbelieving will be spared. Which means if you think that if you're going to re- rejoice or, or get ugly over the unbelieving Jews being broken off and taken away and become proud of being added into a work that is being added by grace, not by your works, understand that if you don't believe, you also will be removed. Verses 25 through 32 speaks about the reclamation of Jews in the future. He says in verse 25, this is a great mystery. It is, it is something that we cannot fully understand, but we know that God is working out and that he will continue a remnant of Jews being saved all along the way while, as it says in verse 25, a fullness of Gentiles is being brought in. So the concept is that missionaries are going out to the world and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and non-Jewish people continue to come into the kingdom of God until there is a fullness, which means the purposed number of people. There will be somebody who's the last Gentile to come into the kingdom of God. There will come a time where Jesus comes again. I have no idea. Only God knows who's going to be the last person. But there will come a time where there is a trumpet and a shout and Jesus returns again when the last has come in. But until that fullness, there is still a remnant of Jews believing in Christ Jesus. In our day and age, we call these Messianic Jews. Those who have not given up their uh, ethnic or national Judaism, but they believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Now, there, I'm, I can't get into how that's going to separate them from the friends and family and what all that might mean, but they believe in Jesus as their Savior, and so they have entered into the common salvation of Christ Jesus. But once this fullness of Gentiles comes in, there will be a greater salvation of the Jews in the future. It's my understanding that in verse 26, when Paul writes this, and in this way all Israel will be saved, and he goes on to speak about that, that this refers in some way to Revelation chapter 7, verses 5 through 8. Revelation chapter 7, verse 5 through 8, talks about uh, a large number of people, 144,000 Jews being saved at some point in the future. And it is all Israel in that it is a portion of every tribe, all 12 tribes. A large number of people come to salvation at that point in time. And it has something to do with both the grace and the faithfulness of God to remember the covenants that he has made to them Because when we turn over, or we get to verse 29 in Romans chapter 11, you have this very interesting and important verse. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Once God begins a work, he is faithful and he will complete that work. God never begins a promised work and then breaks his promise and doesn't finish his promised work. When he gifts someone by his spirit, that gift will come to its fruition. When he has made a covenant with someone, he will keep his covenant. And he has promised the salvation of Israel and he is working out the salvation of Israel and he will do so into the end. Now when we get to the end of what is said here, 
Paul mentioning that it is a mystery, his summary is this. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of God. How unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So God, Paul, cannot perfectly reconcile all these things. He tells us how God's been working in the past. He tells us how God is working in his time and something about how God will be working in the future. And then he causes, he turns it to worship. That the Lord is continuing to save people out of sin and death from every tongue, tribe, and nation. But I think for us not to get lost in a lack of clarity here, we should just summarize what is being said uh, in four things. One, there is one tree and one foundation of salvation which is coming to us as Gentiles through the Jews. There are not two salvations. There's one tree, and we are grafted into the one tree, one promise of salvation coming to us through God. Second, God has begun a new work saving Gentiles, and he has joined the previous work of saving Jews into a unified work. Third, the faith of the Gentile, the new faith of Gentiles, will lead to the revival of, of the old Jew in a full circle. So something about us proclaiming the gospel and us being zealous and joyful and knowing and serving Christ will serve to cause Jews to look at what they have missed and come back and believe in Christ Jesus as their Savior. And that's important. I don't know how many of you may have Jewish backgrounds or may know Jewish people, but your joy and zeal and earnestness in salvation and trusting in Christ will help them also to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. And fourth, God will not spare the unbelieving of either group. If you are sitting here this morning as a non-Jewish person and think that you're good enough to enter into the kingdom of heaven because you can do enough stuff for God, God doesn't want your stuff. Until you believe in Jesus and repent of your sins, you will be lost. If you're a Jewish person sitting in this congregation today thinking that because of what God has done in the past that you will enter into heaven, or if you're a Gentile person that looks at Jewish people and doesn't want to have the courage to tell them, you must believe in Jesus or you will be lost. You need to understand that Jesus is the Messiah and all who reject him will be lost. But his grace and his mercy is extended to us. And so those, going back to Acts chapter 10, those who believe will be forgiven of their sins and enter into the kingdom of God. And so in this joyful scene of these things that Paul is speaking about, working their way out right in front of Peter's eyes, the summary of this is fascinating. He says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing? His immediate move is to say these people should publicly be recognized as Christians. They should follow in the command of Christ as Christ commanded me and all the other Jews that have been baptized. These people should also be baptized. They should be baptized into this common salvation. They have received the same spirit. They serve the same savior and they're going to be baptized in the same way. And so they go and baptize all of these new believers. It is worth saying that he commands them. Peter has no power or authority to command anything that was not given to him by God. But because Jesus commanded him, he is commanding them. 
We are getting ready to baptize some folks here this morning and we'll do so in both services. And it's a joy to see people coming to Christ and wanting to publicly associate themselves with Jesus and follow in this ancient way that as Christians have been baptized for thousands of years recognizing Jesus as Lord, we continue to do this today. Do you believe in Jesus as your Savior? I call for you to believe on him today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this. There's been much said here this morning. I pray that you would help us to understand these things. What you are doing in the world. You have entered into the world for our salvation. That we might be, by grace through faith, forgiven of our sins. And be adopted into the kingdom of God. And enter into life, the life of Christ. I pray this for every person that is here that their hearts would be turned towards you, O Lord, that our eyes would be fixed upon you, and that our souls would be satisfied in you. I pray for those who are now to be baptized, that you would bless them on this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.